May the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Gene Weingarten of the Washington Post wrote, He emerged from the metro on the Levant Plaza station, this is in Washington, D.C., and positioned himself against the wall beside a trash basket. By most measures, he was nondescript, a youngish white man in jeans, a long-sleeved T-shirt, Washington Nationals baseball cap. From a small case, he removed a violin. Placing the open case at his feet, he shrewdly threw in a few dollars and pocket change as seed money, swiveled it to face pedestrian traffic, and began to play. This is in the, the, the subway station, the metro in D.C., and earlier, the, the day before, the Washington Post had sent some, uh, a, a, uh, like a technician down to install a hidden camera in the upper corner behind where this violinist was going to play. If you want to, you'll, you can go to YouTube and watch the video of this man playing. Um, you can even see sort of the time lapse as he plays for 42 minutes. A thousand and ninety-seven people walk past him in this busy subway station at rush hour traffic early in the morning. You notice that almost every single one passes by and doesn't even bother even to glance over in his direction as they walk to their trains. Interestingly enough, of all the people who actually do stop to take a look or try to stop and listen, almost all of them are children. They stop and listen to this music and you see their parents, you know, Grab them by the arm. Come on. We're in a hurry. We have to keep moving. Um, the violinist collected $32.17 for his 42 minutes of playing. And what people didn't realize was this fiddler, his name was Joshua Bell, and he is one of the world's most famous um, violinists around. In fact, he had played three nights before this in Symphony Hall in Boston where tickets were over $100 a piece just to get in. And here he is playing at the metro station, wearing jeans and a ball cap, and nobody notices. Weingarten wrote this, Bell's performance was arranged by the Washington Post as an experience, experiment rather in context, perception, and priorities, as well as an unblinking assessment of public taste. In a banal setting, at an inconvenient time, would beauty transcend? Nope, <laughs> not at all, at least not to anyone over five or six years of age. I wondered what people thought. You know, I, I watched the video, and I saw people just like walking by, you know, sometimes kind of half over, most of them not even looking at all, just walked right past him. I thought, about what in the world could they possibly be thinking? I mean, I imagine some people thought, better than music, <laughs> better than elevator music, I imagine somebody thought, hmm, he's pretty good. Um, I bet some people thought, well, isn't that sweet? This homeless man gets up early to ply his trade in the subway station. Do you think, you think somebody of the 1,097 people who walked by that day thought to themselves something like, come on, man, get a real job, as they hurried past him? Um, the, uh, the, the, the writer, uh, the reporter, Weingarten, said that the pic this particular spot was chosen at the Metro because it is sort of the, the central nucleus hub for people who are working 
in uh, the government offices in D.C. Uh, he, he says, mid-level bureaucrats with ambiguous job titles like policy analyst, facilitator, or specialist. Each passerby has a choice to make, don't they? Will they stop and listen, or will they continue on? The reporter also asked uh, Leonard Slatkin, who is the, um, the music director for the, the National Symphony Orchestra, and he asked him this question. He says, what did he think would occur hypothetically if one of the world's greatest violinists performed incognito before a traveling rush hour audience of, say, a thousand people? Slatkin thinks for a second, and then he says, and I quote, I don't think if he's really good, he's going to go unnoticed. His audience would be larger in Europe. thought that was kind of funny. But okay, uh, out of a thousand people, my guess, there's, there might be 35 or 40 who will recognize the quality for what it is. Maybe 75 to 100 would be willing to stop and spend some time listening. So the reporter asks, he'll gather a crowd then, right? Oh, yes. And how much money do you think he would make? Slacken answers, probably about $150. Of 1,097 people, any guess how many people stopped to actually listen? Seven. Seven people stopped for at least one minute to listen out of 1,097. And never, not even for a single second in that 42 minutes, was there ever a crowd gathered to listen. Not a single second. You see, it was just no big deal. One of the world's greatest musicians, and, he, and, and he, Joshua Bell says the music that he selected was some of the most complex pieces that he's ever played. Some of the most complex pieces ever written. So he, he chose these incredibly difficult pieces of music. And he played them on a Stradivarius, an instrument worth $3.5 million. Great music. Great musician. One of the world's greatest instruments. And people walked right by. It just wasn't a big deal. And it got me thinking, well, wonder what was a big deal that day, you know? I mean, what was the big deal? I've got to get to Starbucks, double latte of soy milk. I mean, that's a big deal. Maybe somebody wanted to get there and say, you know, I need, I, I'm working on the statistical analysis of, you know, the effect of, of, um, Methane gas produced by Iowa cattle eating only um, organically modified alfalfa. Or maybe someone thought, you know, i got to get to the water cooler. The guys are going to want to talk about RG3's lackluster performance last night against the Eagles. I mean, we've got to get there. What has become of us when we don't even have time for real beauty? We have no time for this. We, we, we rush through life and, and just miss the things that are really important for the things that are really unimportant. Welcome then to the Gospel of St. John, right? You've heard this story before, right? The story of Jesus who goes to the temple. It's, it's a famous story. Um, it's, it's Jesus going into the temple and there's uh, the buying and selling and, and he, he drives out the, the, the sellers and the money changers. You know this. It, it's, it, it's curious in John's gospel. It happens way at the very beginning. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's the very last thing that Jesus does before uh, the week before he's executed. 
So it, it, it's in a different place, and, and there's a lot of reasons for that. We could get hung up on it. I don't want to. just want to announce it so that if you're already thinking about it, then you know I haven't passed it by. But it's not the most important part about this narrative. Two things are going on in particular that you should pay attention to. And these are, this is consistent in, in, in all four Gospels. If you're told something once, you know, and you forget, okay. Twice? All right. This is four times, you know. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all have this. And these two similarities, there. there's the buying and selling of animals. And you say, well, why are they doing that? Because this is part of the ritual sacrifice of the Jews. It was required. It was part of the worship. And you're like, oh, that's, you know, that's a bit barbaric. Well, it may seem barbaric to you, but it was part of the Jewish liturgy. It was consistent with the way all Jews worshipped. It's consistent with the way that Jesus would have worshipped in the temple. It it was required. People had to offer animals. Victor Hamilton says in the ancient Near Eastern world, there was no concept of worship without sacrifice. They went hand in hand. It was was a necessity. And if you were a Jew traveling to the temple in Jerusalem, where it was the only place where you could offer the sacrifice, and you came from a very long ways away, it made perfect sense that you would buy uh, an animal for sacrifice once you arrived in Jerusalem. It was absolutely uh, sensible. The other issue then is, of course, the exchange of money. What's going on here? Well, in the ancient world, the most, current, most of the currency was um, a Roman currency. And on the, cover, on, the, on the Roman coin would have uh, a picture of the emperor. And usually some inscription about how he was God. So you have this Roman emperor, an inscription about how he was the image of the invisible God or something like that. And, and so for Jews, that was a, it, was, it was repugnant that they would use this currency to purchase an animal that they would then sacrifice to the real God. So what you would have is you would have an exchange like you would find in, um, in an international airport when you take your American currency and turn it in, into whatever you turn it into, British pounds or whatever. You know, you would go to the temple. There would be a man there who would take your Roman currency and he would exchange it for temple currency. The only place the temple currency was good was actually in the temple, but you had to make that exchange. And then you bought your animal for sacrifice, and you went in and you and you performed your duty, your service, your worship. And you know the story, right? Jesus sees this going on. It's going on in the courts of the temple, as, as John says. He, he, he makes a whip, and he starts driving them out. It's pretty obvious that what he's driving out are the animals. Okay, So hitting the animals with the whip... Very common, not something that was abusive. Uh, It's a way that you would move them. Anybody who's ever moved large animals, I've never done this, but I've seen it done. They actually use something like this. You know, there's a prod, there's a whip, there's some sort of way to kind of, you know, get them startled and get them moving. You can notice Jesus looks to the ones who has the pigeons, and he doesn't use the whip on them. He tells them, take these out of here. So it's clear that he's moving. But imagine the scene, you know, all these oxen and sheep like running through the temple courts. He takes the money changers and he takes their bags, uh, John says, and he pours out the money. (laughs) You know, there's chaos going on in this passage. Now, perhaps you've heard, and you've heard rightly if you have, that some scholars say what was going on is you had a lot of extortion. You had people who were selling the approved animals at an above-market right price, right? So you know that the animal's approved by the priest, but you got to buy it at a premium price. You know, if it's, a, if it's a $10 animal, well, here it's $20, okay? And then you have the exchange issue going on, 
And the exchange rate was often said to be outrageous, so that, you know, your, your $1 is worth 50 cents and so on. In other words, the worshippers were losing their shirt on both counts, both in the buying of the animal and the exchange rate that they had to, to, to use in order to purchase it in the first place. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke say, they have Jesus saying rather, you have turned my father's house into a den of thieves. Spleon laced him. This is, this is a, a den of thieves. And every one of them has the exact same phrase, the exact same word. Den of thieves, den of thieves, den of thieves. But not so in John. Did you notice what he says in John in verse 16? Here's what you, you would have noticed. Jesus says, stop making my father's house a marketplace. The word here is from the same root from which we get the, the English word emporium. A marketplace. Stop making it my father's house into a marketplace. You see, I think while Matthew, Mark, and Luke have Jesus rightly upset about the extortion that's going on, I think John is right too. Jesus isn't just upset about the extortion. He's upset about the whole event, the whole circus surrounding worship. That there is this kind of real um, scandal going on. And the scandal is, is that there is a barrier between people and God. It's all about this buying and selling. It's all about um, the banality of commerce that stifles their ability to have genuine worship. I think this story is um, perhaps the most wrongly applied story in the Bible. You know, uh, I don't know, maybe not the most, but it's certainly up there in the top ten, all right? And one of the things I've noticed is that in some churches there is... um, there's this big push to have like a separate building. So like you have the worship place building, and then in the same campus but like in a different location, you get the the kind of secular building. And in this building you can eat and have parties and, you know, do fundraisers and bingo and whatever else. You know, but it's just as long as it's not under the same roof. Um, that's all nice and good, but that has nothing to do with what Jesus is saying here. It's not about any of that is missing the point. You see, it, it comes very clear in the latter part of this same passage because what does Jesus say? He says he's going to destroy the temple in three days, put it back together, right? Raise it back up. The temple is Jesus. In a post-resurrection world, Jesus is the temple. He is the very presence of God. And so wherever we gather, wherever Christians gather around the name of Jesus, he's present there with us. That's what he says, right? Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I will be. In the ancient world, you want to come into the presence of God? Go to this building in Jerusalem. But you know what we could do today? We could gather in your kitchen. Yes, your kitchen. And, um, and we could sing songs and read scripture. And we could, we could even have holy communion. And your kitchen could become the very locus of the presence of God in the world. Now, if we did that, would that mean from that point on you could no longer, for instance, pay bills at the kitchen table? Somebody's thinking, I hope so, because I will invite you over. Um, Does that mean that you could no longer have a snack in the middle of the night because it was once used for the worship of God? Does it mean that, that you could no longer buy shoes online at your computer sitting at the kitchen table? It does mean that, but not from this passage, right? No, it doesn't mean any of those things. The presence of God is wherever Jesus is. That's not the point. So what is the point? What is the point of this passage? Just this. 
that Jesus is frustrated by us missing the big deal for the little ones. He's frustrated that we will put secondary and tertiary, and I don't know what the fourth version of area is, but something like the quadestrian area. You know, he, he's frustrated that we're going to put these things in front of the primary. That secondary issues and third level issues become more important than first level issues and vice versa. What is life all about? What is it about anyway? Is it about the acquisition of stuff? About houses and cars and groceries and shoestrings? I mean, is that really what it's about? Is it about finding Mr. and Ms. Wright? Or getting into that right college? Or, or landing that right job? Is it all about the accolades and the, the awards and the recognition from peers? Those things are not unimportant. I like it when we get groceries in my house, too. It's not that those are, are unimportant. They're just not primarily important. They're not the first thing. The Westminster Confession, how does it begin? Do you know? What is the chief end of humanity? What is the chief end of humanity? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is the chief end. That is the number one thing. Everything else comes after that. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And anything that gets between that first goal and you, anything else that gets above that first end is scandalous. When I first uh, came across the story of Joshua Bell at Blonfont Plaza, I thought to myself, as I watched those people walk by, while he's playing this incredible music, what dweebs, you know? I mean, come on, you losers. What are you people doing? Stop. You know, just take a minute. I mean, how often did that train go by? Like every three minutes or so? I mean, wait for the next train. You're probably going to be crowded on that one anyway. And I think to myself, you know, if I had been there, I would have stopped. Marie, I would have stopped, wouldn't I? I'd have stood up against the wall and listened. Maybe not the whole 42 minutes, but I would have listened for a while. I'd have taken some of that in. But then I got to thinking about it, and I thought to myself, you know, that's just my arrogance, thinking that. The truth is, I'd be like, man, I hope they have sugar-free vanilla at Starbucks, because I really want a latte this morning, you know? I'd be thinking, uh, man, i got to get this kid at daycare, and here he is dragging behind me. Oh, man, the guys at the water cooler. I cannot believe. Wait till we talk about that game last night. And I would have rushed right past the sublime. Would have rushed right past it because some kind of banality was stuck in my head. I'd have been one of the 1,090 people who missed it. What about you? See, the one thing that I see Jesus being the most passionate about in the gospel, all four gospels include the story. Did I mention that? One thing that I see him being most passionate about is when we allow things to become more important than God. Zeal for your house consumes me, he says. Not just for the house, but for the presence of God. And this, nothing else gets in its way. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.